Genesis 28. It's an interesting little text here with two relatively different topics. Uh, as you can see on the screen there, we'll talk a little bit about partner. Uh, it's a major theme in Genesis of don't take a wife from the Hittites. Uh, and it gets hammered into us a fair bit more here in this chapter. So we'll talk about that partner selection. Uh, and then we'll talk about the presence of God and that great story there uh, of Jacob's ladder. So let's read here, starting, we'll pick up at the end of 27, just as a reminder for us. Uh, it says, Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I am disgusted with living because of these Hittite women. Wow. That's not, that's not what you want your mom saying. Uh, if Jacob takes a wife from among the women of this land, from Hittite women like these, my life will not be worth living. So Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him. Then he commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman. Go at once to Padan Aram, the house of your mother's father Bethel. Take a wife for yourself there from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your number until you become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham so that you may take possession of the land where you now reside as a foreigner, the land God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob on his way and he went to Padan Aram to Laban, son of Bethuel, the Armin, the brother of Rebekah, who was the mother of Jacob and Esau. Now Esau learned that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him to Padan Aram to take a wife from there and that when he blessed him, he commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and had gone to Padan Aram. Esau then realized how displeasing the Canaanite women were to his father Isaac. So he went to Ishmael and married Mahalath, the sister of Nebaioth, the daughter of Ishmael, son of Abraham, in addition to the wives he already had. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you. They will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and watch, watch, will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. <coughs> you know, it's a great text and a great story, especially the second half of it. Uh, but the first half of it, you know, it is, it, is, it is worth our attention. You know, and like I said, it's not the first time 
that this theme has been brought and put before us, right? Uh, Mike touched on it a little bit last week, but if you look back in, in your Bible just to there to the end of 26, <coughs> you see there in Genesis 26, those verses um, 34 and 35, it says, When Esau was 40 years old, he married, married Judith, daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, and also Basmath, daughter of Elon, the Hittite. They were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Right? So that's our introduction to the story we looked at last week. Right? And then, of course, we have the story uh, of Jacob and Rebekah uh, plotting to steal the blessing away from Esau. And we, we covered that and talked about that. And then at the end of that, we get what we also read today. There in Genesis 26, verse 46, Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I'm disgusted with living because of these Hittite women. You know, and so it's an interesting thing here that the narrator of Genesis is doing. You have this very famous story uh, of the stealing of the blessing, and that story is the meat in the sandwich, and the buns of the sandwich are two things that tell us about the problems that Esau had brought in his household by marrying Hittite women. Right? And that's not accidental, that is intentional. Right? Uh, we've already seen negative things about Esau portrayed in terms of his impulsivity and being governed by his sensuality rather than theology. Uh, but here, you know, back in that previous text and then the beginning of our text here, we're again hit with this reminder. Why is Esau unsuitable for the blessing? Because of the choice in whom he pursued in marriage. And we can also, you know, we can often, you know, skip over these things, but it's, it's, it's there and it's a reminder time and time again for us. You know, even as Esau tries to make it right, it's not exactly, you know, positive in how he goes about doing it, right? He, he's engaged in polygamy and then he's in, engaged with intermarriage with foreign women, having nothing to do with race, but all about their faith, a twofold error and how he pursued it. You know, Esau, and I think the point the narrator is making there is Esau is unfit. He's unfit to be leading God's people forward because of the choices he has made. But this is not a theme just in this text, right? This theme goes on and on and go on. Even in the text we read today, I mean, look at the force of the words that Isaac uses. I mean, Isaac, who, who up to this point has been a bit of a passive character, Right? He thinks he's on the deathbed, he's duped into not, you know, unsure which kid. But all of a sudden, he seems to be getting a little bit of fire back in his step. And he calls for Jacob, and he blesses him, and he commands him. Do not marry a Canaanite woman. Even the next section that we read there in that paragraph, uh, where Esau learns that, that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him to Padan Aram, take a wife there, and when he blessed him, he commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman. So even, even Esau, who up to this point has been a dull character spiritually, unaware character spiritually, even he's beginning to clue in on, hey, I'm creating problems. Now again, his solution is not a great solution, but you at least begin to see some movement in Esau trying to get back in the right direction. But the, the, again, the narrator, though, is hitting us with this. This is a major problem. This is a major problem in the patriarch's time, and this will remain a major problem in the Old Testament in general. Right? As, the, as the God's people you know, eventually end up uh, in Egypt, and after they come out of Egypt by the plagues, and they come to the mountain, and they get the law in Deuteronomy 7, here's what the law says. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons 
or they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. It's pretty clear. But it's a challenging command for, for a variety of reasons. One is that it is a multi-generational command. You don't get a lot of these, but they're being told, hey, for you yourselves, don't intermarry. And for your kids, don't let them intermarry. Why? All about influence. All about influence. Moses, as he's preaching the law to them in Deuteronomy, God has made it clear to Moses that the danger that lurks there in that choice is hearts that will be turned away from God. Hearts that will follow the people of the land, the Canaanites, the Hittites, uh, all, all those various people, uh, and they will draw the hearts of the Israelites away simply by their choice of who they marry. But we need to be careful here. Because sometimes we can look at that and we can think, like Mike even touched on a little bit last week, well, maybe I can influence them in the other direction. Right? Maybe I'll be, able, I'll be the one to help them have faith in God rather than me lose my faith in God. Right? And you begin to think about that, and that sounds good on face value. That sounds, okay, that sounds promising. It even sounds a little bit faithful. Right? Now, now let's stop and think for a second about our Bibles. Right? Who is like the wisest guy in the Bible? Who, who's the guy that was so influential right, that people would travel? Rulers of other nations would come to him to learn from his great wisdom because he was so influential. Who is that guy? Solomon. Solomon. And what does he do? Marries foreign women. And not just one, not just two, not just three. Hundreds. Look at this. First Kings 11. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughters. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidians, and Hittites. They're from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them. Because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. And his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his hearts after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. We have the wisest man in the Bible. Solomon, right? Making the very mistake that even Esau made. Because right? we can look at Esau and we think, well, I mean, he's impulsive. I mean, I would never do that. Sell my birthright for a bowl of porridge? No way, you know. But, but here's, here's Solomon and all of his great wisdom. And what he does is the very same thing. And the tragedy of verse 4 there. That his heart was turned after other gods. So much for Solomon influencing. But it's also a great passage because it challenges one of our modern concepts that needs challenging. It tells us multiple times, two times in that text, that Solomon loved them. But you don't understand God. I love them. Because love, that, that emotion, that feeling, that trumps everything else, right? Even though God says, don't do it. Well, no, 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 God, I love them. So that makes it okay. That's a lot of times what we can think. And you think, does God respond to Solomon with, oh, okay, sorry, didn't know you loved them? In that case, that's fine. That's not how he responds, right? Because the reality is, those statements even about Solomon's love for them, 
They don't justify Solomon's position of rebellion. It actually justifies the very reason why God says don't do it. Because it's a heart issue. And it's about what our heart gets attached to and what our heart pursues. The very fact that Solomon loved them so much showed the very reason why God said don't do it. Because God knew that if Solomon allowed and opened up his heart to those influences on that level, he would be led astray. And it's the very thing that happened with him. And twice we're told that that is the core heart issue. There at the end, as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. It's a stark warning. And Solomon will become an example of this in the Old Testament. One of my favorite passages on this, you don't have to turn there, but Nehemiah 13. If you've got good eyesight, read away. I'll read it to you though. You're familiar with the story. They've returned from captivity. Uh, they spent many years rebuilding the walls. Uh, you know, Ezra has worked alongside Nehemiah, teaching the people the, 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 the Bible again, the Old Testament. Uh, you know, and, and, and towards the end of it, you know, they're kind of uh, ironing out some of the last creases. And it says here, Nehemiah speaking, Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah, who had married women from Ashod, Ammon, Ammon and Moab. Half their children spoke the language of Ashod, or the language of one of the other peoples, and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair, or different translations, some of their beards. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? I mean, think about that. You think about how Nehemiah handles that. Right? Sorry. Let me go back. You think about, I mean, you think about, you ever, if you ever had a conversation with someone, maybe me, and you think, oh, Sam, that's a little harsh. <laughs> a little bit cutting with your words. Maybe a little bit too strong. Nehemiah rebukes them, curses them, gives them an unwanted haircut, <laughs> and then makes them make oaths, obviously under compulsion because he's just hit them. You know what I mean? I mean, how sincere of an oath is that when someone just pulled your hair out? It's not going to be very sincere. But you see the indignation in Nehemiah. And why is he indignant? Because he looked at Solomon. And, and I think Solomon in many ways is in the Bible for one of the, you know, one of the primary reasons. Probably for this reason. Because we in our pride think, well, I'll be okay. I can navigate it. I'm smart enough. I'm wise enough. I'm charismatic enough. Solomon was a thousandfold more than any of us. And yet he was led astray. And Nehemiah wants him to understand the seriousness of that choice. Even into the New Testament, we see the same, same concept being put before us. You know, Paul, as he writes to the Corinthians two different times, right? Uh, chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, there in verse 39, as he's answering some Q&A from them. He says a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes. But, 
she must belong to the Lord. Anyone she chooses, but there is a parameter that God has. They better belong to the Lord. But the entire section there in 2 Corinthians 6 all the way into chapter 7 is all about don't be yoked together with unbelievers. Don't emotionally bind yourself on that level to an unbeliever. Don't do it. You know, and again, we, we, we can struggle with this and we can wrestle with this. But we've got to see the pattern of the scriptures are clear. Esau is put before us in this aspect of Esau's character. Sandwich is one of his great moments of failure. And it, and it forces us to see the reality of one of the reasons why he was rejected. It's because he was marrying the foreign women. Again, it has nothing to do with race, nothing to do with culture, and everything to do with their religion, their faith. Sacred Search, which is a great book that covers this topic. The writer comically makes this, this, this quote. He says, The mysterious Bible version I'm always looking for is the one I see many people following and memorizing. And it goes something like this. Seek first the kingdom of, his, of God and His righteousness, except when you're choosing someone to marry. In that case, you should follow your emotions. Insist on a thrilling romantic attraction an overall relational compatibility that makes the relationship fun. And then all these things will be added unto you. You know, and it's a comical look, and it is a great book as well to read, but it's, it's pushing at, you know, a lot of times we can buy into that. And our world is very much like that. Our culture has conditioned us through movies and, and, and song uh, and uh, various for, other forms of, of multimedia to, to buy into this concept of the most important thing is the emotional feeling of love. And that's dangerous. It's dangerous for a variety of reasons. One of the most obvious things is, is, is it's novel. It's a new thing in the history of mankind. It's a byproduct of individualism and our overconfidence uh, in ourselves and our ability to make decisions and choices. In his book, Sacred Search, there, Gary Thomas cites a study, and he says, In 1967, a study of college-age women found that 76% of these women would marry someone if they had every trait they were looking for, even if they did not feel romantic love towards that person. So in 1967, 76% of women in a, kind of a married age would choose to engage in, in, in a relationship and end up married to someone if that person ticked a lot of the boxes they were looking at but didn't have that romantic chemistry that gives you butterflies in your stomach type of feeling. Fast forward to our modern day. 91% of women say they would absolutely not do that. They would not marry someone if they had every trait they were looking for but they didn't have that romantic Hollywood kind of love that they're looking for. Now, everyone else knows the stats. If you were married in the 1960s, or even early 70s, the statistical likelihood of you remaining married over the course of your entire life is very high. If you've been married in the, in the 1980s, 90s, and for sure into the 2000s, you have a less than 50-50 chance of remaining married. Now, we in our modern viewpoint think we have this figured out. And we put a lot of stock in our choice and our feelings and our emotions. But even those stats should make us pause and think maybe we don't know. 
Maybe we don't have it all figured out. And then when we read about people like Esau and Solomon, even Nehemiah and the people of his day, we should even take a further step back. I think, man, I've got to have more humility about this. That this is a major choice of who I bind myself with in this life. And if I really believe that God is number one, if I really believe that my heart is fully devoted to the Lord, why would I even entertain the thought of yoking myself or binding myself to someone who doesn't even care about this? Who doesn't even give thought about God. I'm going to often try to reason with people in those scenarios of thinking about, hey, if they treated your physical father how they treat your heavenly father, you would break up with them. You wouldn't hesitate to. Even if they treated your best friend that way, with disdain or at best apathy, you wouldn't stay. But we, we, we justify it, we rationalize it, and we've got to think, man, are, 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 are you really more influential than Solomon? Are you really? Probably not. Do you want to follow the example of Esau? I mean, no one reads Genesis and thinks, oh yeah, Esau, he's my man. That's who I want to be like when I grow up. No one thinks that. No one reads those stories. He's one of those guys where just like, oh... Really, Esau? Like, I mean, you botched it up before, and your choice is to go to Ishmael's relatives. I mean, who else in your family has kind of been banished into the wilderness? Ishmael. So that's the choice you come up with. That's how you think this is going to fix it. I mean, it's just, it's like failure after failure after failure. And he's a bad example. Don't follow his example, amen? Don't follow his example. Have the humility to trust God, honor Him in every area of your life, especially who you marry. Secondly, and way more positive, amen? It is this phenomenal story of Jacob. And Jacob at this point hasn't looked a heck of a lot better than Esau. Right? He's cunning, shrewd. Uh, whatever word you want to use doesn't sound like you know he's a deceiver. You know, what I mean? he's cunning, he's crafty. But but here he, he he steps away from his family. You know, and even that relationship with his mom is going to be be severed. Uh, and in many ways, you know, obviously she, she'll spoiler that she'll be dead by the time he returns. You know, but he, he steps out on his own, and he, he it's not easy. Maybe the first scene we get is of him pulling up a rock and having a sleep. Some of the young people went camping this weekend and it was cold. But I'm willing to bet none of them, even though it was very, very cold, decided, hey, let me grab a boulder. Let me find a nice rock and put that rock under my head and lay down and have a sleep. But that, that's where he's at. He's sleeping rough. Uh, he's he's out all, all on his own. He doesn't seem to have a bunch of servants with him meeting his needs. I mean, he's had a pretty privileged life. And, and here he is finally out on his own. And it's the very thing he needed. And that's a huge reminder for us. Because we all will inevitably have times in life where you will feel alone. Where you'll be pushed outside your comfort zone of what you're familiar with and what you know and what you feel safe in. And you'll be alone. Or so you think. Or so Jacob thought. Because as he goes there to sleep on that nice, soft, heavenly rock, he has this incredible dream. And he has this dream 
where he sees a, a stairway or a ladder resting on earth with its top reaching to the heaven and the angels of God are ascending and descending. Right? And commentators debate, you know, well, is it like the, the ziggurat? Is it like a, a rekindling of the Tower of Babel? I'm not sure that's the detail we focus on. The idea is the angels of God are coming to and fro. And depending on what translation you read, the Lord is either standing at the top there in verse 13, or you can look at the footnote if your Bible has footnotes. But that Hebrew phrase can also be translated or as being there beside him. So the Lord is either at the top of the ladder, watching the angels ascend and descend, or the Lord is standing there next to, to Jacob as he sleeps, uh, and, and he has this vision. And it says that God says to him there in verse 13, I'm the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the east and the west, the north and the south. All people on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And it's an incredible moment for Jacob. As the promises that have been given to his forefathers are then personalized for him. But there are some key examples or key additions that are put in there. This twofold reminder of, hey Jacob, I am with you. I'm with you. Wherever you go, I'm going to be with you. I mean, it's a funny scene because he does. He names the place Bethel as the house of God, as a meeting place of God. But he also has this this reality that he'll walk away from. And we'll we'll look at all the verses where he mentions it. Of, of, man, no matter where I go, though, not just in Bethel, but wherever I am, wherever Jacob is, God will be with me. There's Jacob's ladder. That's not the one we're talking about. That's in Perth, right? You know, but it says there, 28.13, Yahweh was standing there beside him. 28.15, look, I am with you and I will watch over you wherever you go. I'll bring you back to this land for I won't leave you. Then further on in chapter 35 of Genesis, as, as Jacob has spent 14 years uh, getting wives, again, polygamy, bad example. It'll be shown to be a bad example, but getting wives from the place he was told to get wives from. But as he's gearing up to come back to his household, he tells them, He tells all the people of this community at that time, let's go up to Bethel where I will build an altar to the God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. That's a heck of an outlook. Because we're going to cover those chapters to come and it's not like those 14 years are all sunshine and rainbows for him. They They were hard years. They were hard years of him being deceived and in many ways probably facing his own deception. And yet, how does he look at it? How does he frame it as he's returning? You know what? I want to go back and worship the God who has been with me wherever I go. Later on in his life, as Jacob is faced with the prospect of having to leave his family home and go to Egypt because of the famine, God comes to him and he says, I myself will go down with you to Egypt. A reminder to the old man, I'm still with you. I'm still with you. And even later on, as, as Jacob blesses his sons, in the middle of that blessing, he talks about God. He says, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. I mean, this moment in Jacob's history in, in, in chapter 28 is one that sticks with him for, for decades to come. 
Because he realizes in this moment that God is with him. That no matter where he goes, whether it's being deceived by Laban and working like a slave for 14 years, or coming back and having to to face Esau, who he deceived, who he thinks is maybe going to kill him, it doesn't matter. God's with him. Or later on in his life, when his his own family has become a mess, brothers trying to kill brothers, and there's a famine and he's got to go to Egypt, it's, hey, God's with him. And even as he's there blessing his sons in the end, what he's recalling about God is that he is a faithful shepherd. A shepherd that never left him, his sheep. It's such a powerful reminder. Richard Bachman in his book, Who is God is Great, which is a good book to read. He says, to discover that God is with us is probably the most important discovery anyone can make. For once made, it colors all of life's experiences. I mean, with is such a small word. But if you have kids, you know how profoundly that can change things. Oftentimes, sometimes, I find myself trying to convince my kids to do something. And the response is no. But it's funny how you say, well, mom will do it with you. Or if dad will do it with you. How they get confidence. The idea, well, hey, someone bigger, someone stronger, they're there. Well, then I can do it. You know, sometimes it is something legitimately scary and sometimes you think, you didn't really need me there, you know. Uh, you can go to the toilet on your own. But there's this idea that, man, if, if someone is there who, is, who we see as stronger, more powerful, greater knowledge, that thought that they are with us changes everything. Fear, fear evaporates. All right? You get courage all of a sudden. Nothing's changed in yourself, but simply you now realize someone else is there with you. And everything changes. This is a huge, huge theme in the Bible. I mean, Isaiah, as he looks forward through prophetic eyes of what's to come, he names that child that will be born of a virgin, Emmanuel. God with us. They weren't great times for Isaiah. There were difficult times. There were hard times. And what did he look forward for? He looked forward longing for a time where, man, God will be with us. Now, it's not that God had abandoned them in the captivity. He was with them in captivity. But they had lost sight of that. And when that Emmanuel comes on the scene, jump over there, John chapter 1. Very interesting, the first thing that John tells us about this Emmanuel First teaching moment in the Gospel of John occurs here at the end of the chapter. Starting there in verse 45. It says, Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Does anyone ask? Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. And Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I said I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than that. 
He then added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Those eight consecutive words in the Greek, verbatim from our story. Word for word. The angels of God ascending and descending. Jesus wants Nathaniel to think about that story. Nathaniel's impressed. Right? He's a little bit racist. Nazareth? Anything good come from Nazareth? No way. It's like Rockingham. We've talked about that. Look at that. Sorry. It's the only illustration I can think of. Right? But, but he, he sees in Nathaniel this sense of, hey, he says what he thinks. Nathaniel's not a deceiver. Esau is known as the deceiver. And, and they're impressed by that. And for the first of 25 times in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, truly, truly, I tell you. Amen. Amen, I tell you. So 25 times in the Gospel of John, you get very important statements prefaced by that. And the first one is them being reminded of the story of Jacob. With one little tweak, though. That ladder coming from heaven, those angels ascending and descending, they're coming down on Jesus. That Nathaniel and the other six companions at this point need to understand all the work of God, all the messengers, that's what angels are, all, all of that, all of God's work. Guess who it's being done by? And on is Jesus. And not just that, there's no ladder. Some commentators say even that text there in John 1 should be read, should be read as if Jesus is that ladder. That he is that bridge between heaven and earth. That he is that connective person who enables God's work to be accomplished in this world. And the big takeaway from that story of, of Jacob and that ladder is that reality that God is with him. And even here is Jesus' reason with his disciples. It's the same idea. You need to know who's with you. You're impressed by that, Nathaniel, because I had foreknowledge and could see you having a nap under a tree? Do you not realize who is with you? Do you not realize who is in your presence? Everything changes the more they realize that fact. Now, so often for us, we forget it. I don't remember who said it, but somebody, some famous dead person said, you know, that our greatest need is, is to, to, to live our lives knowing that we are in God's presence. But I mean, if we really live that way, if we really thought that, I mean, think about how different our choices and our decisions would be if we really actually believed, hey, Jesus is here with me. You know what I mean? Beck says she goes under the knife tomorrow and, you know, they give her the gas and she counts down from 10 and she's asleep at 9. You know what I mean? In that, 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 those moments before where she's wrecked with nervous and anxiety, and I know I'm making it worse right now, but stay with me, Bex. This, you know what I mean? If, 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 if the last person she looks at is Jesus, she's going to feel a lot better. She's going to feel a whole lot better. But, but so often we go through our life and we give little thought to that. To that reality that God is with us. God is with us. I mean, as Jesus dismisses his disciples at the end of Matthew and gives them the Great Commission, he reminds them, hey, I'm going to be with you always. I'm going to be with you. What did Jacob need to know? God is with him. Star Wars. 
Everyone loves Star Wars. If you don't, I don't know, leave right now. No. <laughs> you know, in Star Wars, what do they say repeatedly as they're departing? May the force be with you. Over the course of the seven movies, how many times do they say, may the force be with you? You get a gold star if you get it. My kids can't answer because I already asked them. Sorry, no gold stars. 20 times. Now, where did George Lucas come up with that? Yeah. Catholicism. A lot of times we bash Catholicism because they depart from the Bible. But there is something about ritualistic liturgy, the repetitive phrases. And one of the ones that's common in Catholic Mass is, May the Lord be with you. And also with you, you can tell who went to Catholic school. Right? Grew up Catholic, right? You know, I mean, that, that, that reminder... That reminder of May the Lord be with you. That's what inspired George Lucas to put it in the movie. Right? It actually comes from the Bible a lot, though, guys. By the time of the first century, most people think that was like the common phrase you'd say if you were Jewish. You can see all the references from Ruth all the way through to 2 Timothy. This reminder of, hey, the Lord be with you. Because what do we need to remind each other of? Hey, God's with you. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be anxious. You don't need to be wrecked and controlled by, by, by fear. God is with you. Even our phrase that we use, goodbye, is a contraction from the 16th century of God be with you. For a vast majority of, you know, time since Jesus, that, that's, what that, that's how you would say. That's how you communicate. That would be the last imparting words you give to a loved one before you see them is God be with you. And if you see Star Wars, you see how that changes people. Man, what if we did that more and more with each other? And what if we genuinely, man, we've got to remind one another. God's with you. We gather together to remember God. And then we scatter apart. But man, in that, those six days in between, you know, this week it's less because we have midweek. You know what I mean? We've got to remind each other. God's with you. That's what meets your needs. That's what changes your life. That's what transformed Jacob. And that's what can change us. But man, we need reminders because we forget. We become nearsighted and blind like Peter writes. And we see only the problems and only the issues. Only the wind and only the waves. And we lose sight of Emmanuel. We lose sight of the one that's greater than Jacob. Who is with us always to the very end. Amen? Amen? Let's have a prayer, and then we'll stand and sing one final song. You know, Father, we, you know, we thank you for Jacob's restless night. Thank you for the, the, the vision, the dream, the glimpse you gave him of reality, God. Father, we, we pray that you help us, God, as we, as we leave here today, to not lose sight of that great reality, God. We pray, God, that you burn it into our hearts and our minds. The notion that you are with us always. In those moments when we're alone and we're tempted to fall into sin, God, we pray we remember that you're with us. In those moments when we're full of fear or anxiety, God, we pray you help us, God, to pause and remember that you are with us, God. God, we know that there is nothing in this life not even death, angels, demons, nothing can separate us.
from you. Father, we pray you help us, God, to be a people that, whose lives reflect that reality. That are courageous. Though we're unschooled, though we're ordinary, though we're nothing special. But the reality that we are with you changes everything. And help us, God. Help us to remind one another, to encourage one another with that reality, Father. And we thank you. We thank you that you have made a bridge, that you've made a... You've filled the gap that exists between us and you. You've provided a way for heaven and earth to be together, and that's in your Son. And Father, we know that it's only through him that any of this is possible. That it's only through him that, that us sinful people can, can be with you, God. And we thank you for that grace and mercy, God. We ask for more and more forgiveness and cleansing as you help us on this journey to be the people that bring you honor. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Let's all stand and sing a fitting song. Do you mean to do it?